0: I'm Tim Richart. And I'm Michelle Boland. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Warn your dog, double reserve the Stairmaster, or intentionally drive into traffic because this is a good one that you are not going to want to stop listening to. I chat with Zach couples on topics such as, is Zach old Kanye or new Kanye? Would I make a good hype man? Zach's alternate profession, the evolution of Zach's practice and interest over the past year, managing the dreaded sway back posture, increasing degrees of freedom and appreciating effortless movement as a rehabilitation strategy, ranges of motion, movement skills, or workload as a strategy to get people out of pain, using client goals to drive long-term programming decisions, structured mobility drills versus unstructured play for range of motion improvement, the value of cultivating non-lifting, non-running movement practices, balancing training alone versus leveraging social interaction during team and group training, Zach's ninja training and solo wall ball adventures, our low-hanging fruits for injury prevention for athletes, Zach's treatment philosophy in two sentences or less, Which 25% of how we currently practice might be incorrect? And finally, rapid fire and listener question and answers. Whether you're looking to gain a deeper understanding of biomechanics, attempt to contextualize breathing drills within a training program, or simply find out how Zach keeps his head so shiny, this episode has something for you. If you enjoyed it, it would mean the world to Michelle and I if you could subscribe, review, or share what we're doing here. Now to the episode.
1: Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, is assembled in the USA and delivers a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get 10% off your Anchor Pro order when you use the code MTLP at checkout. Anchor, train without limits.
0: And we are live with Mr. Movement Debriefer, Old School Course Reviewer, LZ Masigantico, Big Z, Zach Couples himself. Zach, how the hell are
1: you? Well, I think you're hired for doing my intros from here on out. That was way better than what I do. Um, Tim, I'm spectacular. I'm juiced up as all hell to be chatting with you again because we always end up having good conversations. So how are things your way? I mean,
0: I'm just going to put the offer out. Like, If you ever just need a hype man to introduce you at your your courses or on other podcasts, I can just kind of travel with you and do that five to 10 second intro and
1: then kind of hop out. Well, if you're going to be a traditional hype man I would want the intro but then also to like so if you if you ever go to a rap concert the hype man usually will emphasize like the yeah so it, it's like so then we want to coach the stack you know and then we would do that that actually would probably be really cool yeah I, I think
0: like more of a little john style would suit my strengths where you you say something and then I just yell that word really loudly into a microphone but at a infrequent enough interval to keep everybody on their toes
1: yeah, I, you know what, I think we're onto something because I, I think, um, and this is something that I think about when I'm presenting is that it, it, it really, I want to try to make it as much of a show as possible while still learning because that keeps people engaged. So I think that would only get us closer to having that.
0: To, to use this as a springboard to a, a sort of real topic, I have noticed like with your YouTube content lately, you have like a nice beat going on in the background and that's nice. Yeah yeah but do you you like that honestly like it's something i've been kind of experimenting with on and off yeah you put and i'll I'll put the link in the show notes but you recently posted the video on arm bars and i thought it was great Mm -hmm. except for one of the beats had some like recurring vocals to it
1: oh okay yeah like the
0: but the beat itself i really liked
1: so no vocals yeah
0: because you're the vocals man you're the show
1: yeah yeah well and so and uh Part of that's probably because like with um the hip hop that I really like, a lot of the older stuff. You remember like when Kanye was very, really starting out, he always had kind of the high pitched vocal in the background and that was part of the instrumental. And like some of the uh another producer I really love, Jay Dilla, he would do similar things. So, but if it's distracting, I will uh make note of that when I uh get my beats in there.
0: I mean, who, who are you in the rehab and fitness space, if not the Kanye West
1: of the rehab and fitness space? Well, I hope that I'm more old Kanye than Kanye. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just because, uh, well, and, you know, and I shouldn't rag on him too much because he does continue to innovate and I do respect that. It's just, I I resonate more with his older music than than his new. Conversely, like uh, Eminem, who's, who's my number one rapper, Uh, That man has continued to innovate throughout his career, even though he's not as popular as he was in the beginning of his career. I think lyrically, he is far surpassing his younger self. Yeah, he can still lay it down. Unbelievable. And just uh, like he rhymes way better in the pocket than he did very early in his career. Like he stays on beat. He can mix it up. I mean, just, it's amazing. Like you, you want to be like Eminem in, in your profession, whatever it is. And that's just continuing to innovate, get better. And yeah.
0: I'm going to use this as a segue to get into a question I actually did want to ask you, and this is going to be towards the towards the end of our time together, but you know, you're know, you pretty well known in the rehab and fitness space and the movement space, but if, if you didn't occupy that role, if you didn't do what you currently do, what other profession could you see yourself
1: doing? How, how else could you see yourself spending your time? Well, I think, uh, and maybe this is one reason why I like Um, production and and content and things like that is I kind of always had a little bit of a dream of being in Hollywood like a Hollywood actor a director of some sort and uh, this kind of helps fill that void I guess that I and it's funny because like I had that dream for a while as a kid and then I never did any formal acting or anything like that and then once I got into this it just kind of like stoked that a bit so I could, I could definitely see something like that. Um, the question is, would I be a starving artist or be someone who is somewhat respectful who knows? But if I, let's, let's just say that, that that's off the table and I just had a, a more realistic job. Um, I think I would probably either be something in finance because that's something I've really grown to be interested in. I'm not sure what that would be, but um, I, I really like learning about that stuff. And if that didn't work, I would probably be either a uh, a uh, a uh, postal worker or a uh, UPS guy. Cause I was I always liked the physical activity of of that. Like you didn't tell me I could be I could deliver the mail. I could be walking and getting paid to walk. You know, listen to tunes, podcasts, whatever. Sure. So that would be the the tier of career arc if I uh, if I could. And might I just say, from personal experience,
0: no one rocks a pair of short brown shorts better than Zach Couples.
1: Yes, indeed. It kind of reminds me of that one uh, South Park episode where the the UPS guy was continuing to get beat up by all the dads in town. Um, that, would, that would probably be me.
0: Oh, let's let's hope your fate would would fare a little bit better than this. So what's up? And so last time we spoke, that was uh, March of 2021. I went I went down to Vegas and we were able to have a chat and hang out and elevate. So it's been Indeed. the better part of a year. What's what's new in your professional life? What's new in your learning? What are you most stoked about?
1: Well, uh, let's go professionally first. So uh, not much has changed actually on that front in terms of uh, still work at Elevate Sports Performance and Healthcare, seeing patients there. Um, and of, of course, still doing the thing at zackcuffles.com. So I've been doing remote consultations, mentoring, training on that front, um, have done a bunch of human matrix seminars since, uh, March of 2021. So that's been really cool to have that back in the mix. Cause I really did miss that. That's probably my favorite thing to do is, is teach. Um, and I've been doing, uh, producing a lot of content and I've just been, um, especially like the last few weeks, I've been really thinking about how I want that to be different than what it was. Um, just in terms of how can I reach more people to help more people on on the movement side of things. So um, that, that's been been really good. And in terms of uh, you know what I'm doing on a on a day to day basis from a treatment perspective and things like that. You know, looking back to what I did back then versus now, even though a lot of the principles are are still the same. I think a lot of the the methods are more refined and, and different. So, um, you know, uh, instead of, you know, I'm, I'm utilizing a lot of other different things, such as uh, various strategies to get people to just move with less tension overall. Um, so that that's where like a lot of rolling-based stuff and things like that have been going. Like in the last month, I've been actually, <laughs> it's funny because I, I think I was definitely delaying hinge-based activities with quite a few people. But I've also been dealing a lot more with folks who who I like to call the over tuckers or sway back based postures. And I've actually found doing things that are closer to a hinge have been really useful for that. Um, And and just using other different positions uh, to to help facilitate that. And I think um, the other thing that's probably changed is just thinking more about how can I how can I continue to stoke these qualities under higher intensity activities. Um and uh you know that's that's where like really really looking at where I can throw this into plyometrics, throws, um, loaded based exercises, all of that. And then just continuing to refine the coaching. Um and, and continuing to go slower and 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 emphasizing different concepts on that because I think Um, you know, from what I've garnered with a lot of these concepts, especially teaching and just observing some of the the people who attend my seminar and and people who I work with is, I I think we, it's very easy to go down a long rabbit hole of really fine-tuning and designing a specific exercise to get a certain quality, but the, the problem is, is I, the, the ability to coach these things well is is sorely lacking, uh, you know, I, and even just with like the, the simple concept of the stack, you know, which for those of you who don't know what that is, that's like making sure they tuck well, making sure that we we coach breathing in a specific manner that maximizes one's ability to move in the lower rib cage and, and as well as the upper rib cage, not necessarily quiet breathing. Um, a lot of people still struggle with that. And, and so um, really hammering the fundamentals on that front and continuing to slow down how I coach things that all of that's been immensely useful. And there's some cases that, you know, as I reflect back that I, I had struggled with, and it's like, man, if I had just done things the way that I'm doing now, um, maybe it would be different. And I'm sure that's going to change two months from now as well. So, but those are kind of the things that I'm, thinking about right now at least on the the movement side of things that uh the you and you had a movement debrief
0: about this I want to say two or three months ago like the like, uh, sway back treatment strategies management strategies yeah and that would that that's been such a game changer because that's sort of you know I've, I feel like for years I kind of tried and failed to manage these folks with breathing interventions first but then actually getting their pelvis to where it needs to be in space, doing something like um, like I really like a like a bench supported hinge or like 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 some kind of a supported hinge, just so they can feel things actually getting long on the backside of their pelvis has been yeah. such a fucking game changer. As opposed to trying to get them to like release tension places, like actually putting them in a position where their pelvis is no longer jutting forward in space. So it was yeah I, cr- I credit you because I think it was that debrief episode that actually gave me license to like really start experimenting. With that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it's I'm I'm, I'm glad that you found that useful because I've also struggled with those folks as well. And you know, like uh rolling based activities and all that, it was also a very good starting point with them as well. But eventually you gotta teach them to to bring the pelvis back. And and actually, too, for that specific population as well. Um, generally they they are utilizing a uh, a more rectus abdominus dominant strategy. And so a lot of times when they tuck, you'll not only see them over-tuck the pelvis, but then they'll also depress the sternum. And I'm actually going to be doing a video on this that's a bit relevant next week, um, where uh, utilizing a lot more prone-based positions um, is really good. And so like prone on elbows, like a lot of like the classic, you know, developmental DNS positions, I've been utilizing those more and messing with them. And they've actually been really good for that um so it's kind of which is funny because I never used to use prone all that much but it's like we use all these other developmental lower level based postures why not prone and I, and I think it's because a lot of times people have have a tendency to extend to through the back as opposed to um reaching through the arms but um coaching that well has has also been really helpful but Zach if I lose my zone of apposition when I get diabetes uh potentially potentially yeah um you just got to be be careful with that but you you, you, you have to look at what what quality are you trying to drive and is the way you're doing it getting that quality that could be of anything you know like i can uh you know if your if your goal is hypertrophy you can you could do compound lifts to potentially get that but then there's limitations to that at some point in time and maybe machines are better so i'm not opposed to any specific intervention, as long as it pushes me towards the, the goal. Like, uh, I I say this in my seminars, like if you, you know, if you can get someone their results by spreading peanut butter across their forehead and having a seance, then do that. You know, it, it, which by the way, you know, zackcubbles.com forward slash peanut butter, that's going to be the new product that we have for all your fat loss goals. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't think we need to be dogmatic about anything. Let's use a, let's use what works. Zach.com forward slash seance butter. Say Se- <laughs> yes, the seance butter. Yeah. Gosh, that would be a great store. I thought about that. And then also um, selling uh beers that are like narrow and wide IPAs.
0: <laughs> oh my God, like 72 people would think that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's, it wouldn't scale at all, but no. but it would be funny. I love that you you touched on something that I think has started to become a theme for season two of Michelle and I's podcast, which is this this notion of learning to move with less tension. And I think it gets to the root of a lot of what we do as physical therapists. Like you could kind of argue that a big a big rock for probably how both you and I treat is trying to get people more into like a stacked alignment, right? Skull, thorax, pelvis. But then I think another another huge piece that I didn't really fully realize until six months ago or nine months ago is this this movement dissociation and this restoration of relative motion. And again, i gonna credit your I credit you and and your daddy O pops Bill Hartman for kind of popularizing this notion. But it just seems like a lot of really good pa- things happen when we when we learn to dissociate segments of a body and restore degrees of freedom. So I just kind of wanted to tee up and let you riff on that.
1: Yeah, that, that has been an immensely helpful uh, uh, piece for me as well. And yeah, I, I mean, I, and again, I got to give credit to, to Bill on that one, just because he's, he's continuing to innovate that. Um, it, it has been immensely useful because... when we're we're talking about movement of any kind, it implies that there's a gradient of some sort. So, you know, movement occurs when things go from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. So like in, in the office right here, if I had a bunch of people in the office, uh, um, there wouldn't be much movement unless I opened the door and then people might go out to where there's less people, which would be in my living room. So Uh, But now the problem is, is a lot of the folks that at least I work with, I can't speak up on everyone, but um, they might have a situation where there is no available gradient. So this would be someone who's limited in multiple directions. And so then then what do you do for that person? Well, if I'm limited in multiple directions, then that means that at rest, there is an increased amount of muscle activity for whatever reason. And, And we can't preface to the reasons why. Um, You know, there's likely genetic factors, epigenetic factors, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so if if that's the case, then I need need to utilize strategies that help reduce that tension overall. And then once you do that, it makes sense to then create tension in certain areas to then drive movement. And, And so doing that has been a really good starting point for a lot of folks. And that's not just on like the lower level rehab activities. I think reducing tension is also immensely important when you look at, um, more high speed things like plyometrics or, or really any sport you, you have to be able to relax enough to elicit the stretch shortening cycle and then produce force very quickly at one moment in time. And I work like, I work with a lot of golfers and in order to have a really good golf swing, you have to have an an incredibly fluid swing. Like you can't, try as you might, you cannot force a really good golf swing. And the only way that you can have that fluid golf swing is to have very little tension into the backswing, produce just enough to elicit a good impact. And then your follow through has got to be chilling like Bob Dylan. So, and, and we see that too with sprinting. Like why, why is it all the elite sprinters have cheeks that are, are flowing in the wind when you you, you slow motion? It's because they're face able to- cheeks. Produce, We're Face We're talking cheeks. face yeah, cheeks. Yeah. yeah, I I yeah. Typically they don't show the show, the back angle when they're running. So we can't testify if that's going on, but that's why you got to go live. So you <laughs> that angle. exactly, exactly. Uh, not, that makes me wonder, uh, you know, if, uh, that, when I ran, if people ever did that, but, um, <laughs> anyway, YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Zach
0: couples track and field
1: 2005. Yes. 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 I would go. Oh, seven. I would probably looked better at that, that year. Um, uh, yeah. So like even in that sport or like heck, anyone who excels at anything, it oftentimes look, looks effortless. So if we can teach our supreme clientele and ourselves to move with less effort overall, I think that only has positive effects.
0: Yeah. And what I would add to that is like, my, my practice is in the CrossFit gym. So it's like, you know, these are typically people in their thirties and forties that have desk jobs that have high training age, but that like to load heavily five or six days of the week. So mm-hmm. I think like they're really, they're compounding whatever genetic and epigenetic factors they might be presented with and kind of creating this perpetual high tension, high tone situation, where then my job becomes really easy because all I have to do is convince them to do you know, five to 10 minutes twice a day of activities to dissipate that tension and they start to feel a lot better. I mean, I think, you know, when when you think of the typical power lifter or crossfitter going and running, it's like you just kind of think of someone that's rapidly punching the ground over and over again that can't yeah. really like roll through and create stride length. And when you were talking about that, the like a, a golf swing, like to me, that's like that's the stride of a middle distance runner. Where it's like, if you watch a sprinter trying to accelerate over like a 40 meter, 60 meter stretch, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of relative motions. There's not a lot of like elastic windup. It's just kind of like bam, 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 bam. But like a, a truly efficient miler or, or like even like, you know, 3k, 5k. It's like, they're getting this maximum elastic recoil and they need just the right amount of tension to be able to harness that. Too little. And they just kind of like melt And too much and they start to really stiffen up. So, I mean, it it doesn't really matter if you're in pain and you want to get out of pain, if you just want to improve your athletic performance, I would go as far as to say, even with some of the lifting performance oriented things, you need to know exactly how much tension you ought to be producing as opposed to everything is a 10 out of 10 tension at all times.
1: Yeah. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Every, Every movement that we do has an eccentric component. And in order to maximize the eccentric quality of anything, you have to be able to minimize tension to some extent. And and obviously, that's going to change depending on the context. So, you know, the power lifter, they need to minimize tension, but it's not as much as, say, the contortionist needs to minimize tension.
0: And. I think that's just such a radical paradigm shift from what most people think about in the weight room, in the gym, is like, we want things to be tense and tight and like teeth gritting and trying really, really hard. I mean, I think back to, I've only recently started to program planks again for a lot of my people. And the Mm. reason I program planks is not maximal ab tension. It's to learn to titrate ab tension and still breathe and get sternal motion while there's some degree of ab tension. Cause that's like a second or third order skill at that point. Like, can we we stabilize a, a thorax relative to a pelvis and get respiration versus just crunching everything and holding that sternum down, or even worse, like we get an inhale and the sternum goes further down.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And it's, it's, an, it's a concept that you can apply ad nauseum in it. And if you can get someone to understand what you're trying to go for, it, it really will simplify your coaching because you're, you're teaching the same thing over and over and over again. Hey, this that you're doing on the plank, I need that at your, uh, you know, cable press, which I also need when you do a med ball throw, which I also need when you box.
0: Yeah, very well said. And and I think it, this sort of gets us to a one of the big biomechanical topics I wanted to discuss with you today. When we look at how a coach or a physical therapist can help an individual, like in my opinion, there's there's three primary arrows in. In the quiver. We can improve systemic ranges of motion and mobility, and we usually assess these via table tests. I know you treat like that. I know I treat like that. We can do things to improve the motor control coordination and skill of an activity. So if they're a runner and they don't run well, we can teach them to run better. And then we can modulate the, the workload that an, that an athlete is going under. So how, how much intensity, how much volume, how many minutes on the court, how many pounds lifted. What are your, do you consider the movement piece to be the primary arrow in your quiver? Um, And whether you do or not, speak to the interaction between those three things and, and how you approach trying to solve that matrix when you're trying to optimize an outcome for an individual.
1: I think just because I predominantly do physical therapy, that enhancing the amount of movement that someone has um is definitely number 1 for me but there's elements of all of that with everything because you know sometimes you uh you get someone moving differently and then they go and do their normal activities and because now they have more available movement they might be loading things differently and that can make other areas a bit cranky because they're not used to loading in that manner. So the interaction of all of these things, I don't think it's really hard to, I think it's very difficult to separate, in fact, damn near impossible, because in that example, even though I the, the focus with someone was enhancing their available ranges of motion, well, we've altered the load management properties. Now, instead of having a continuous load over one area, that maybe is contributing to that person's pain experience. Well, now I, I have an acute load spike of now a broad area of, of being loaded. So um, I, don't, I think there's a, a false dichotomy in, in uh, movement that these areas are separated, but the bias will change depending on who you're working with. Or like, uh, you know, for example, I, I, I train quite a few individuals as well, both in person and remotely. And I, I still will increase someone's movement availability and, and ranges of motion, but perhaps I'm not continuing to test retest on the table, and maybe the KPIs or something that's more dynamic and standing. And I'm trying to select positions and activities that would complement what they need on from a movement perspective. So, let's say someone has a loss of shoulder internal rotation that may mean that we do some activities to enhance their shoulder internal rotation but then on when I when I choose loading based activities perhaps the the heavier loads if I'm if I'm trying to increase force production are not challenging ranges of motion that they don't have so maybe you know maybe that's uh, doing some type of chin up and then uh, doing maybe a decline bench press or whatever I don't know Um, and then, but then the accessories, which are a little bit less taxing, um, those are trying to work in ranges that would potentially improve someone's internal rotation. So maybe that's alternating horizontal presses, maybe that's slight, um, um, you know, higher incline presses, things of that nature. Um, and then the the load management piece, well, that's just making sure that you temper the amount of uh, volume and intensity that you're giving someone. And, you know, anytime you introduce something new, you need to start with small amounts and then increase that over time. So it it really all blends together in in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And there is, there's
0: definitely a degree of directionality between those buckets, right? The overall motion availability, the skill of movement, and then the workload. And I think it can kind of, it can flow in a lot of different directions. Like obviously a more skilled mover that can, let's say, better disperse forces over multiple joints is going to be able to tolerate more workload, even if ranges of motion weren't improved. Like even if their table tests remain exactly the same. So, just it's. I, I think it's interesting and liberating the sense to be able to to be able to have all of these things in play to have multiple different directions to get outcomes with your people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that as soon as you close off. Any one thing as potentially helping someone, you you almost impose some some self limitations in terms of your intervention capabilities. There's a, there's a lot of ways that we can get people better, and I, I think it would behoove you if you work with people and you want to help people to try to have more things at your disposal. It's just a matter of knowing when to use what.
0: And I also appreciate you bringing up the the notion that when you're looking for a physiologic adaptation, like when you're looking for muscle building, power output. I think one of the big misconceptions about what both you and I do is, you know, people see the videos that we make, people kind of see the things that we tend to um, put a little bit more detail into, and they and they tend to be more the movement-oriented, like asymmetrical front-back stance, breathing in a particular way. But those aren't the exercises that are particularly well-suited to developing athleticism or power output or hypertrophy. Um, so being able to have a good idea of when to include a more traditional weight room exercise like let's say a goblet reverse lunge and when we're going to go into something a little bit more movement oriented like a front back front back staggered stance like cable chop or something like that and knowing that we're driving a movement adaptation with one and more of a power or hypertrophy or physiologic stimulus with the other.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly it's just the the problem of the internet is there's no you you can't always give context to when you would use what, even if you write out specifically what you would want to do. It's just, you know, that, that person has to interpret what you're saying, uh, you know, just based on their biases, because there's no conversation of when certain things would be useful versus not. So, um, yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I know uh, a big thing that Michelle is into these
0: days is the notion that you can just take these big kind of big rock weight room exercises and tweak them slightly and they become biomechanically far friendlier. So like she's into these slightly offset trap bar deadlift, mixed grip pull-ups, things like an alternating single arm dumbbell bench press where mm-hmm. we're just a hop skip and a jump away from something like a bench press or a deadlift, we're still getting 80 or 90% of the training effect. But without a lot of the deleterious biomechanical baggage that comes along, and I think that's that's a really interesting way to solve this problem. Like we still want uh, positions where people feel stable and they can try hard, but maybe that won't rob us of so much external rotation or internal rotation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a really good idea, and that's something that I've been utilizing a lot as well. Because uh, I think most of the, and again, I can only speak upon my population, but a lot of my population isn't looking to necessarily be weight room, all-stars um, they're looking to either get out of pain or they're looking to train with less pain, or they're looking to um, look a little bit better <laughs> you know, physically, or they want to do different activities. Like again, at, at elevate, we work with a lot of people who love golf and, you know, ha- getting huge and muscle bound, that tends to be counterproductive to that. So you, you know, so for that person, um, having a massive bench isn't, isn't necessary. So you you have to give people what's necessary for whatever their goals are. And then maybe, you know, again, if I have someone who really wants to push either their, their strength gains, or they do want some type of body composition things, then I think that things like that are warranted, but then you want to try to do things to ensure that they can do that for long periods of time. And that's not pushing them in so far that we end up getting a significant drop off of movement because that could potentially hinder them training wise at some point.
0: I suppose it's fair to say that your people at elevator interested in more train, less pain.
1: (laughs) Indeed. They they could be, they could be. Yes. That's a really good podcast name. We should probably really look into uh, designing a podcast for that. Yeah. yeah, Yes. Someone should, someone should. Or, or two people or two people who don't live in the same vicinity
0: uh, do you have any thoughts on so I, I, th- I think most people listening to this will be somewhat familiar with uh, their work with your work if, if they're not shame on them we'll link to lots of it in the show notes but you know the, the way that you typically operate at least from a rehab standpoint is testing some kind of a range of motion giving that giving an exercise giving an activity and then retesting a range of motion do you think that there could be an alternate shape to that? I don't want to call it transaction to that entire situation whereby a person might be able to circumnavigate such a structured activity, but still elicit beneficial movement changes. Like I'm thinking back to, I just listened to uh, our episode from March and you talked about how one of your training and exercise loves at that point in time was spike ball. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, if you were to table test a person cold walking into the gym and then table test them 15 minutes into a spike ball game, might we see benefits that are comparable or, or maybe in some cases superior to more targeted respiration and position-based exercises?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't measured myself or someone before and after spike ball. Um, I think anything can get someone better it's just looking at the probability of specific things. Like here's, here's, here's maybe an analogous example. Like, okay, I could, I could, let's say I could do spike ball as my, uh, as my sport. For those of you who don't know what spike ball is, well, shame on you. It's an amazing game, but it's basically like volleyball, like a 360 degree volleyball thing. Well, there's a lot of, jumping or running around and change a direction that ought to occur with spike ball but if i'm someone like me (laughs) i i try to grind the game down to a very slow halt by doing a bunch of crazy serves um well then the, the 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 chances of me achieving those physiological adaptations just because maybe i'm not getting as good of the reps as i could or you know here's another thing like maybe you get really good at hitting and you don't have to move around as much because you, you know exactly where placement is. Well, the chances of me getting the movement adaptations that I want are probably less, or if, especially if I'm playing someone who's not as, not as good as me. Conversely, if I, now let's say I play someone who's significantly better than me, I might be moving around a lot more. And so the, the chances of me consistently getting favorable adaptations of any kind are gonna be variable. Conversely, when I do a structured program, the probability of me eliciting a specific adaptation is that much higher because my intent is to try and get this. And I'm doing a specific amount of sets, reps, all of that to get it. And so I think really like gym-based stuff, rehab-based stuff, that's what it is. It's just a more targeted intervention because when you start to apply these concepts to more open loop activities, um, you you don't necessarily know the the qualities that you're going to attain are just going to depend on the environmental factors, and you and you can apply that to any sport. And that doesn't mean that you know doing other sports couldn't get you into shape. I mean, heck, there you know there's some people like you know when I worked in basketball, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people in really good shape basketball wise um, who didn't lift a weight and and they were just absolute monsters. So. But, but if you want, if you're trying to target a certain adaptation, then you probably need to practice that. And that's just like anything, you know, we, we could even extend that to learning music. You know, you can try to, to freestyle a bunch of different things, but if you really want to learn a song, you probably need to practice the elements needed to perform that song.
0: Yeah. So we had a conversation with Joel Smith of Just Fly Sports Performance a couple episodes back, and we were just talking about this this progression of exercises and training from the utmost structure and order to chaos and kind of the, the need in order to structure a successful and very engaging training session to embrace elements of both the utmost order and the utmost chaos. And I think what he deals with primarily is a lot of younger athletes. Like he's working with a lot of 13, 14, 15 year olds. Mm -hmm. So obviously there needs to be a little bit more chaos. There needs to be a little bit more play. But I think that something that you and I talked about in our March episode was this notion that the goal is not to do as many resets as possible. The goal is not to do a reset as good as possible, but the goal is to need as few of them as possible to be able to have a really truly engaging um, training session. And it would just... And I, I think that was an excellent answer because ultimately people are paying good money to see you and me because they want a very specific result and a very specific outcome. And it would probably be some form of malpractice to just have them play, you know, have them juggle a soccer ball against the wall for 20 minutes and then recheck the ranges of motion. However, there's a part of me that would like to believe that a training program that was designed in such a way to elicit um, general movement variability qualities might get us some of these physical therapy outcomes maybe without needing as structured of an intervention or maybe it, you know might yield increased compliance with a home mobility
1: program. Yeah, I I, I, I would agree with everything you said uh, wholeheartedly on that front and you know Tim, I, this is something I've just been thinking about a little bit as well. Maybe that even extends to training in and of itself. So you know like again you if if your goal is to, um, play spike ball really well or hike a bunch or rock climb or whatever the gym is only going to be able to get you so far with helping that and as opposed to actually practicing the activity in question so you know I think you could also make an argument as well for uh, training on on that front isn't isn't the end all be all as well. Um, I, I remember I was listening to, I think it was Ben, Ben House. Yeah. A friend, a friend of mine. Um, and he said, I'm probably misquoting him and you probably need to actually read the research, but in order to maintain the, the muscle mass that you have right now, you probably only need to train once a week. And then you could, you could get improvements by training twice a week in terms of, of muscle mass. So then it, it just kind of made me think about like, man, like is, is really training even the end all be all. And, and for some, it might be for others it not. And I, and I say that as someone who loves training, like I, you know, I work out a few times a week, even though, <laughs> so I started, uh, I started posting my, uh, I'm doing reels on Instagram and I started posting like some of my workouts. <laughs> One of my friends Rua is like, ah, you know, I'm glad to see Zach back into training. it's like, well, I've, I've been training this whole time. <laughs> like Just because it's not on the Internet uh, doesn't mean I don't train. Obviously, I don't, you know, I'm not like this specimen of a human being either, but uh, it's just funny. So but yeah, I mean, it's like I I enjoy training, but for what I want to do physically, I don't necessarily need to be doing five, three, one bench squat deadlift.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that this is why, you know, for for all the clients that I manage that I do remote programming for, I really like for them to have a thing outside of, outside of the gym and typically outside of running as well, that yes. they can immerse themselves into that puts them in their body that gives them another reason to train. Because I think if a person takes up ultimate Frisbee or climbing or skiing or a combative or dance, it lets them start to see the physical experience as far more than just this is my bench. This is my deadlift. This is my squat, or even like an, like in our domains. These are my isolated ranges of motion. Like it, it if we really know that we're going to be doing a, a wholly immersive activity, that's going to require a little bit of strength, a little bit of power, a little bit of endurance. Then we can start to have these gym sessions that look very interesting and aren't driving towards this like oftentimes, very egocentric goal of like, I just want to be. I, I want to know what it feels like to deadlift four hundred and five pounds.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. So, it, on, on that front, are there specific like, if you got someone who's maybe not doesn't have one of those things, how do you uh, how do you cultivate them finding an activity like that? I'm just curious because that's something I've been I've been thinking a lot about for for people. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I would say this this started with uh, you know you and I talked a little bit before we started recording how I I used to work a lot of home health and balance is like the big issue with older adults and, and reducing mm-hmm. falls risk. And, you know, when I started the first year, it was like a lot of isolative, like, okay, you're going to, you're going to get in this front back staggered stance and we're going to push you around a little bit. You're going to step into it, step out of it, like very structured kind of what we, what we would see in the gym kind of exercises. And then the more I, the more I did it, the more I realized like oh, this, this is essentially some kind of a, like a Tai Chi derivation, maybe even like a ballroom dancing kind of thing. So it kind of morphed into just, now I'm doing ballroom dancing with an 82-year-old woman in her living room. And then when it got time to discharge, the higher functioning ones, I, I started recommending, hey, like go out into your community, see if you can find something that's like this, find something that's structured, that's social, that's engaging, that's fun, because that's going to get you even better than we currently have you, which arguably is like the best that you've been in three years or five years. But I do think, and uh, I'm no longer in, in that realm, these days, but I think there are certain activities that lend themselves pretty well to to a beginner, especially as an adult, like it's not the easiest thing in the world to pick up gymnastics as like a 35 year old. But I think um, I'm in Colorado, like rock climbing is a really, really big thing. You're in Vegas, huge climbing scene. I think, you know, bouldering, uh, top rope climbing are are two really, really easy ways for a person to experience multi-planar movement, uh, for a person to learn to problem solve with their body to kind of like learn a little bit more of where their limbs are in space. Like, I, I think that could be tremendously impactful and not as intimidating as, as like joining a pickup basketball or soccer or ultimate Frisbee team or something.
1: Yeah, that, that's amazing. And, and I think um, the one thing that you, you've mentioned with all of that is there's, with all of those activities, there's a social component. And especially now with us being glued to our phones and, you know, the, the impending metaverse <laughs> coming our way. That is going to be such a uh, a rare thing that I think we will be experiencing. Whereas, like being in the gym, um, even, even though sometimes you can, you know, and maybe that's one benefit of CrossFit is there's at least a social component with it. Um, and and elevate, we have uh, semi-private options that we call custom training, where or group classes where there's a little bit more of that social element as well. But you know, when you're when you're training by yourself, it's very you focus, which you need some of that, but if everything you do is you focus, especially I think nowadays remote work is much more prevalent, um, you need to have somewhat of a social outlet as well. And if you combine, combine that with movement, I think the, the health benefits will far transcend anything that we could accomplish with a, a, a training program in the gym. Yeah. And I
0: think back to a period of my life recently that actually you, you were working with me during, so I give, I give you some credit for this, but when I lived in Boston, I was running with a sub elite track club. Like, that was probably the most consistent running training that I had experienced in my life, which is saying a lot. Cause mm-hmm. I was in my late twenties. Then I was like seven or eight years removed from being a collegiate athlete. And I think one of the big things there was I, I was only training with a team two days a week. So that, that let me actually give my body what it needed the other five days, which was a couple days of rest and these more restorative, like Michelle was handling my programming, you were handling my rehab. Things were going really, really well because I think a certain type of person when they train with people every day is going to train 120% and not modulate well and just kind of blow through discomfort into overt pain and injury. And I think a certain type type of person when they train with people maybe isn't just going to do what's in their best interest. Maybe they're just there for the social aspect and they're not actually putting any work in. So I think there's tremendous benefit to having regular training experiences by yourself as well as, as with a group. And maybe like we were talking about before, that's not even training. That's just, you go play ultimate Frisbee on Saturday mornings. Hell, that's probably
1: life, Tim. What, like, uh, Gosh, I forget what the one quote is the about, about the person who can't spend 30 minutes by themselves in a room. Um, God, you, you know what I'm talking about though? Yeah.
0: No, I know the whole, like, if you don't have uh, if you don't have five minutes to devote to meditation, then you need 30. Like that's the,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, but there's benefits of, of being comfortable being by yourself and alone and, and also, but there's also, we're inherently social creatures. And so, um, I, I would agree with that. That's probably a, uh, a larger principle concept that applies to many different things, not just movement. And so, I, I, I would echo what you say: to have all of those things within a, a well-structured life would be immensely beneficial.
0: Any, any closing thoughts on so this concept of like chaos versus order? Because it, it seems like from this conversation. You would probably be on the end of, if if you're going to be in the gym and you're probably only in the gym for like a a day or two a week, most people, we probably want to structure those sessions to maximize efficacy of time spent in the gym. So very, very ordered so that then we can go do our chaos outside the gym, as opposed to trying to infuse 10 minutes of juggling a soccer ball in the middle of a deadlift workout.
1: Yeah. Unless you don't have chaotic elements outside then perhaps you could, um, you could do that. Like, like, for example, um, I don't get, I, I, me personally, I don't get consistent chaos. Um, So like one of my um, power-based days is I will play wall ball with myself. So I'll just like hit a ball up against the wall and I'll try and go and get it somewhere. Um, And and so that's some element of how I get that. Um, So I, I think you can, you, you structure your training based on what you're not getting outside of that. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think you could use both, but I think the ideal would be to have structure when you are doing structured training, just because the loop is generally more closed and then have something else be more the, the, the chaos open loop. I just
0: imagine a prospective client walking into Elevate, getting the tour, and they're like, "What? What's that guy over there doing in the corner?" Oh, that's Zach. He's just playing wall ball by himself, thirty minutes over lunch every day.
1: That, that actually has happened. <laughs> I was doing wall ball at night, and uh, Coach Francis would what, 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 you know Francis? Uh, he was giving someone a tour, and I kind of re- did. You ever see the movie Above the Rim? No. Oh my God! Well, it's a great movie. It's uh, it's like a '90s basketball movie, because that's when like all the basketball movies came out. And, uh, there was this guy, he would be, he kept like replaying this one-on-one game that he played with someone, but without a basketball and it was just him. And so he'd be like, so I, I kind of envisioned that that's what it would be <laughs> for me. If someone sees me playing wall ball.
0: Oh boy. Or that's Zach. He's just rolling on the ground. Don't mind him. Uh,
1: yeah, that's also been a, a, a true story. Um, you know, people, uh, people always make comments about me rolling around and doing my ninja skills. Mm-hmm. Oh boy.
0: No, but I think, uh, I, I think that makes a certain amount of sense. Like we, we had David Gray on for one of the early episodes this season, and he was talking about something he really likes doing like after a particularly arduous strength training session for his clients is to just like kick around a soccer ball or shoot around a basketball. And I think that meshes really well with what you and I were talking about before this, this need to unlock degrees of freedom. Cause I think no matter how well you execute something like a trap bar deadlift, if the weight's heavy enough, that's not going to be a movement restorative type of exercise. That's very much going to be a, a a power exercise, a muscle building exercise, a minimization of degrees of freedom. So I think where I was kind of trying to lead us to with the question about resets and play versus structure is there seems to be there, there seems like there could be an angle of, OK, yeah, like just do go do wall ball, go do Zach wall ball by himself. Just to make the last thing of the training session not this incredibly high tension, incredibly blocking together, minimization
1: of, of movement options sort of thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. You just have to ensure that the activity is one that elicits that goal. Like, for example, if you, let's say you're kicking a soccer ball around as your cool down, well, if you have someone who has no concept of you know, they've never kicked a soccer ball in their life, that's probably not going to elicit the adaptation you want. Because anytime you're learning something new, the, uh, and this is demonstrated in the research, but the, the amount of movement variability that's performed at that task is at least coordinative. So the, the, the variability you would get within the task is significantly reduced, but the, the outcome is, 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 is varied. Um, you know, so you would have, just have to make sure that the activity is familiar enough that you you do get that specific adaptation.
0: Yeah. It'd be interesting. Right. It's like familiar enough that we can kind of be fairly confident about what the effect is going to be. And yet not so familiar that your body just kind of gloms onto it. And it's, it's not novel. It's not salient, It's just going through the motions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: What do you think, what do you think is the most low hanging, uh, piece of like either mobility knowledge or strategy that, that most athletes in the gym could be using for the improvement of movement that, that, that they miss? Like, what is the, you know, what is like the one thing that might yield 60, 70, 80% of movement improvement?
1: Well, if you're an athlete, that likely means you're producing forces at high amounts and at high speeds. So Anything that contrasts that, which would be low amounts of muscle activity at slower speeds is probably a good thing. And so finding a way to perform something like that could be uh, very useful. And so that's, that's where like, I you know, lose, use a lot of rolling-based activities. I really want to um, spend a bit more time learning like Feldenkrais stuff. Um, you, you had mentioned Tai Chi. That's another example of that. Um, just, just moving slow to provide that contrast, I think would probably be something that doesn't necessarily require a significant amount of coaching, but, but could yield a lot of benefits, I think is, is something that, um, I've been using a lot more. I'll use that when I'm programming for some of my clients, I'll use that as the cool downs, um, on off days, you do those types of things. Um, so I think. That's probably where I would, I would, I would push people towards. What I would add to that too, is I, I, and you and I have talked about this,
0: I know a bunch, but I I think this is where isometrics can be incredibly impactful as well. Like get a person into a position and then the repetition is just breaths as they're finding Mm -hmm. and feeling that position. If we're looking to contrast, like, let's say a runner, a sprinter, a court athlete, that's never really going to be feeling too much of anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that as well. Yeah, and, and both of those are eliciting different uh, interoceptive senses within you. One is feeling nothing, in terms of like less activity, and one is feeling a very specific activity. This is the difference between like a, like a walking meditation versus a focused meditation? You know, one I'm focusing on one thing, and then the other is it's more of a broad spectrum of things. I was I was trying to think about how
0: I would answer that question kind of kind of when i asked it and what like what would your thought be just cuz i think the longer we do this the more we can see the forest through the trees and it seems like a lot of things lately have just caused me to reflect on like what we're really trying to do with the improvement of, of movement variability a lot of times is enabling a person to get expansion in areas of their thorax or areas of their pelvis where they didn't have that before. So it kind of seems like the, the holy grail of easy movement restoration is getting a person to feel like, oh, okay, now now my sternum moves with an inhale. Now my back expands with an inhale.
1: Yeah. And I think that extends even beyond just the thorax, so that, that extends everywhere. You know, you, generally, your, your body is craving e- the most efficient strategy ever, right? So that's why, like, why, why run when you can walk? Why, why walk when you can stand? Why stand when you can sit, et cetera, et cetera. And having less movement is generally more efficient. Um, so we want to try to do things that enhance movement or range of motion, or even like, even on like a, uh, more global perspective, increase space, um, everywhere, because the more space we have, the more available movement we have. So that extends to even something as simple as my elbow joint. Well, if I can't move my elbow in all directions, then I have reduced space there. And I want to try to do things to increase space. And, and, and to me, that's, being able to maximize the amount of space you can create within your body and then being able to manage it under um, inherent stressors of any kind, whether that's a physical stressor or anything, I think that's really the Holy grail of of what we're trying to achieve from a movement perspective. And not only that, but I think that concept probably extends well beyond movement. Um, We want to have increased space of, and diversity of thought and be able to, Withhold our 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 what our thoughts are under under different stressors. Um, th- that's that's even true within like uh, something like finances. I want to I want to increase the amount of, of of financial space I have. Money that and I would diversify my money in the sense that if there is a stressor of like I don't know a pandemic or uh, you know a stock market crash that I'm still doing well. So it, it's kind of like a first principle that I think applies to many different domains.
0: This is why you've converted 100% of your assets to Dogecoin, correct?
1: I'm actually trying to go Floki Inu because that one hasn't popped yet, but I think it will. Um, it's funny, one of my clients, he's like, "If you have if you have enough money for food, then you're not all in on crypto. <laughs> and I do think about
0: this. No, but I think um, there's so much to that, right? Like I, I, I think in a really pared down sense, all we're trying to do from a movement perspective is to create expansion where we don't have any and then to teach relative motion so that we can utilize those, those newly created areas of expansion. I definitely like the generalizability to finance and, and life, but I think one of the questions I was going to ask you, which I warned you was kind of unfair, was to describe your biomechanical treatment model or training model in three or four sentences. I think we might have just done it in like four words with expansion and relative motion.
1: Yeah, well, so here it is. Increased space, which implies there's relative motion between the bones. And then be able to manage that space under uh, under under duress. That that's basically what I do. And 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 uh, yeah, that's basically it. Where do you find that uh,
0: people's big misconceptions about that strategy tend to lie? Like like um, let's say you know physical therapists that you mentor.
1: Well, I, I don't. I, I think the the people who come and want to learn from me have a have an idea of that's what they want to achieve. I think the overall misconception is people think I only need to do one and not the other. And so you have people on one end, and I, and I do run into this sometimes as well, especially with people who I help on the movement side of things is, well, I can't do th- you know, this stressful activity until I have all of my passive movement available. And, and maybe they have a sense within their bodies that their bodies are a bit more fragile, which in, you know, to be fair, some of these folks, when you have a a system that's very chaotic, that can be like, I have a gentleman who I work with right now, where I introduce an activity and his whole body goes crazy, like pain here and there everywhere. And then after a while, he eventually gets it, Um, you know, and those people do exist. And we can't, We can't brush them aside because they need just as much help, if not more, as someone else. Conversely, there's other people who think that, well, I just need to get stronger and manage load and produce more force. And that's all that you need. And well, that also has its limits as well, because we don't know what you're going to look like 10, 20 years down the line uh, you know, look at, look at the health of Ronnie Coleman right now. Like it's not, not good. So, um, I, I think being able to have the best of both worlds is really the key. And none of this has to be, we, I, I think, and I mean, this is probably just the internet in general, or just the way the world is right now is it's, it's always either or conversations. Whereas to, to, I think really have progress in, in any domain, you need to have both and conversations is how can i maximize both of these so we can hit whatever it is the the end game goal is for those those people and so you 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 want to try to you want to try to maximize um, your ability to utilize things in many domains as opposed to just siloing yourself into one
0: there's a big, i think there's a big problem in both the fields of fitness and rehab with people getting incredibly defensive with whatever the first thing that they learned or they were exposed to was and I, I think you said it beautifully. Like we need to be ha- having these. What, what did you turn? It, not either or, but um, and, both and
1: both, both and. and.
0: Yeah. Like like how can how can this be true and this earlier thing that I was utilizing be true? Because that starts to really let us widen the lens that we have available to view movement problems, human problems, and and help people in a in a way that's really going to stick long term.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly because ultimately most people need both to some extent, you need to have enough range of motion that you can stay healthy. And then you need to be able to uh, produce enough force to be able to withstand physiological stressors. And that could be force of any kind. that could be endurance, whatever it is that you need.
0: Yeah. I think there's, there's some really cool things, you know, back when you and I were in physical therapy school, like the, the early aughts, that's kind of when PRI was just coming on the scene. And it's, it's kind of interesting, like five or 10 years later, now, a lot of people that were in that space early have taken that information and kind of come through the other end. And now, now started to layer like really stressful barbell bilateral training on top of that information and trying to create an organism that can kind of handle like these very, very high training loads while respecting some of the principles that PRI exposed you and me to. And I think that's a great example of like, instead of living in this land of we need to wait till table tests are perfect, we can maintain that viewpoint as we now layer on the old school. Eric Cressy, Mike Boyle, Tony General type
1: of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all of those things work to some extent, but it just depends on what, what the goal is of each of those, right? No, no one system or model has all the answers. And that includes the systems that you and I both utilize right now, because there's, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that there are many things that we don't know or are aware of. And I think I,
0: probably assuming that 25 to 50% of, of what we currently do is incorrect has always, I, I could see how that might be destabilizing to some trainers and some clinicians. But I think adding that that layer of humility and really trying to constantly question why it is, you know, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? And constantly refining things like that's how we layer by layer just get a little bit less wrong as time goes on.
1: Yeah, that's why it's practice.
0: Well you gotta, you,
1: yeah, you got to continue to get better. And the, I think because there's so much that we don't know. And again, this is a, a broad concept of there's just a lot that we don't know about reality in general, right, um, that will never have the right answer. It's, it's if you're in science, you're always looking for the least wrong answer. I
0: know, my friend, that you were a busy man and we got to get you back to the studio to making some beats. There's a few more topics I wanted to discuss with you. So what I'm proposing is a lightning round where you will get 60 seconds to give as thoughtful and complete of an answer as you can within the allotted time. How's that sound?
1: Let's get it.
0: All right. Let's pick a good one here. Um, You are well known to the the people that know you as a big hiker and a fan of national parks. Uh, National park and or hike that you are most excited to go on within the next calendar year.
1: Well, I'm going to be going to Yosemite with some friends uh, for Christmas. So I'm excited for that one in the immediate. Um, I'm hoping this summer I can hit up either Yellowstone or um, Yellowstone, Grand Teton or Glacier. Um, I I, I was going to do that last year, but it was stupid expensive. So (laughs) I didn't do that, but um, I definitely would like to hit something that I haven't done yet because I've done Yellowstone. I've done many on the West Coast to come to Rocky
0: mountain national park, by the way.
1: Uh, that's also on my list. Colorado has so many good national parks. Um, and I'm trying to think, I don't think I've done any of them. Yeah, I need to. Yeah, definitely. Definitely come out. You can hang out with me and Aileen. Oh, that'd be great. I would
0: love that. Um, the vision for the Zach couples brand circa 2027.
1: Um, that's a good one, man. I have a list of things that I'm I'm looking to do, but uh my hope is to eventually condense the number of people who I work with um and, and offer a really high quality product. Um and I want to try to automate as many different things as I possibly can with so I can just help more more people because you know there's only 24 hours in the day and I'm only good for so many. Um, so, but the, there's a lot of people who need help. So trying to find ways that I can automate what I offer is going to be on the forefront. And so that's kind of where I'm hoping to be. Um, I really enjoy education and teaching. And so I really want to try to cultivate as much of that as I possibly can. And, and, and you know, it, it seems that a lot of the fam and in, in benefit from that. So if I can continue to get better at that, I will. Yeah, I mean the, the teaching stuff is certainly, I, in my opinion,
0: the way that you've impacted the most people. Like, I think it's it's the reason why a lot of people that do what we do know who you are and are you know asking better questions about the the way that a lot of exercises are performed or conventional physical therapy recommendations. So, I think in that regard, you've already been incredibly successful.
1: Well, I appreciate that. That's uh, very humbling,
0: but can always be better too. So. Um. Biggest problem with the state of physical therapy and the healthcare system currently?
1: Oh <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, well, uh, you know, uh, my bias is outpatient orthopedics. I think um, just because of the way things are going with insurance and things like that, it's there's a lot of places that are becoming much more high volume. And when you have high volume, um, you can't offer as good of quality. So I see that as a big problem. And it's kind of this vicious cycle of, you know, that I do high volume, so I can't offer as good of care. And then research is done on the efficacy of physical therapy, and it shows that it's less effective. And so then now doctors are recommending, I only want you to see a PT for one visit to give a home exercise program. And then the saga continues because, well, now reimbursement declines. So then I have to see more people, so on and so forth. So that's, um, well, it's not concerning for me because (laughs) I, I fortunately, uh, been able to get out of that loop, but it does concern me for a lot of the, the people coming into the profession because it, you need reps to be able to get out of that loop. But if the reps are very low quality, then that's really tough. So Um, you know, I, I hope that the profession can find a way to circumnavigate that problem, but it's going to be a very tough problem to overcome.
0: That's why you got to break the wheel. People that that are listening, go cash-based,
1: set your own rates, be in charge of your own destiny. Absolutely. Um, and, and that goes into making sure you set yourself up very early on so you can do that and take that risk. And that would be not going to a really expensive PT school and minimizing your debt and, um, you know, maybe it, and this is something that, that I think you did that was really, really intelligent was you practiced home health, which you you know what nice about home health, you get one on one time. Um, so that allows you to um, have better experiences, but then also makes more money. And that's you know one reason why I did travel PT for a lot of my careers, because I, I wanted to get out of debt. But also the nice thing about travel PT is I was able to select places where I could work one on one. Because I, I've been very fortunate that I've never had to be in a mill. Um, I've always tried to select one-on-one based places. And the only time I ever saw people twice, two-on-one, was um, there was a couple times with Bill when I was interning with him that I did. And then my residency, there was one clinic where I did that. But I, I would much rather see people one-on-one. And i tried to keep it that way throughout my career. But that's going to be a lot harder to do as time goes on. Yeah, you you and me both, man. We've both been
0: so spoiled by that. And I mean, that's you know, it's that's not luck. We kind of designed our early careers to go in that direction. It's just a shame. Like I, I think a lot, a lot of a lot of really well-meaning future clinicians are going through programs now, and, and they're inevitably going to be the ones that are populating these mills and, and making them work and potentially, I don't know, having having the whole field go in a not so desirable direction. However, Like you said, what that does do is it massively, massively opens the door for people that are willing to deliver a higher quality, you know, 50 minute, one hour, one-on-one service where we can like deeply, deeply tackle these problems in a way that in a conventional physical therapy practice, you know, would be unheard of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that.
0: Best strategy for making behavior change stick with a client that isn't good with doing their
1: mobility homework. You need to find the minimal effective dose for whatever they're willing to do, and um, have a have a conversation with them to or about what's realistic and reasonable, and then you just adjust accordingly. So, and one question I will generally ask someone I got this I think from Tim Charris. Um, is, hey, I would like you to do this X number of times, X, you know, X number of times per day. Does that seem reasonable? Very rarely will someone tell you that you're unreasonable. So um, I I think that's been very useful for getting people to um, establish uh, behavior change. But (laughs) I'll also say this, too, and this is the the bias that I have is generally um, since I've gone fully cash pay now at this point, That seems to be less of a problem, I think, because when someone goes cash pay and they're they're throwing their they're they're having more skin in the game, they're going to follow through on the recommendations. But when I was in insurance, and that was less of a a thing, I I tried to make the commitment very small in the beginning, and then eventually you increase the commitment over time because over time you want people to be more physically active, and you know in the in those populations that I worked with that was hey, I'd love you to start walking <laughs> regularly because you don't move. And I'll add
0: another Tim Ferriss quote to that, which is something I think about quite a lot with, with this type of client, which is what would this look like if it were easy? Mm-hmm. I'll, 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 I'll lay out the program for them. I'll ask them that question. And, and based on their answer, we can then make some modifications. And I love what you said. The, hey, can you give me five minutes once a day? And can we use that as a starting point? I mean, hell, for a lot of people, maybe five minutes once a day is enough of a dose to get the movement changes that we need. But at least we can start. The, the other thing that I would add there too, which is a weird hack that I'm really not sure why it works. Michelle and I have talked about this a bunch, but uh, actually printing out their program and giving, giving it to them on a piece of paper and mm-hmm. having little yeah. check boxes that they can put in. I've talked yeah. about this with Aileen too. There's something about having that actual, like something that exists in the real world that you can check. That's deeply satisfying. Like I think back to when you and I were in our running heyday. Like you probably kept a mileage log, and it was it was very very satisfying to see those miles tally up.
1: Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, I, uh, that's something I did um, w- when I was in my insurance gig. Because I had like my own little exercise manual that I made. So I'd print them out and do that. Um, but that's actually some, a good idea. I should probably go back to that somehow. And finally, two questions
0: that came through Instagram. One is uh, Merle Hammond, and he asks What advice do you have to simplify treatment for young clinicians?
1: To simplify treatment for clinicians. Uh, I would focus on getting your people to get really good at one thing and slowing down your coaching because especially with a lot of the stuff that we do, these exercises can seem very advanced. There's a lot of moving parts, so on and so forth. And on, on the internet, I show you all the parts, but when I'm coaching someone through that, I might focus on only one or two parts. And so you got to get really good at coaching those one or two parts. And so if we're talking about a stacking based activity, can you get your supreme clientele to be bad mother tuckers? So really hammering that before you throw in some some other stuff. Um, I, I think that's probably the most important thing that you can do because it's very easy to overcoach someone.
0: I would add that's, that's probably the biggest mistake I see with, like, I, I do a bit of mentorship as well. And I, th- I think clinicians, especially in that zero to two years out from PT school that are really, really excited to show everything that they know. And typically like the people that are seeking me and you out are kind of the clinicians that are in it for the right reasons. Like yeah. they're really curious, they're constantly learning, but a lot of times that over exuberance can actually be deleterious with
1: like the overall client experience. Yes. Because the the fancy stuff is not going to be needed by the vast majority of people. But you do need to know some of that fancy stuff because as you get better at your craft, you get more well-known in your area, you're going to start seeing the outliers more. But even the outliers need to have the fundamentals down first before you get fancy. And finally, uh, our mutual friend
0: Ranak over in India asks, How is fascia related to pain? Is this something that you consider when designing treatment strategies?
1: So, you know, I I will admit, I haven't studied as much fascial-based concepts as some other people in the industry. But my thought is, is there's there's going to be a limitation to um, explanatory power as well as intervention when you try to isolate any specific tissue. Because you can't isolate any specific tissues, um, so it likely does have some somewhat of a role. But it's insofar as the that person's system operates and, and performs specific movements. You know, um, if someone's doing a, a a fascially based intervention, well, they can't separate the skin from their intervention. Um, and and you can't separate muscle, and you're you're moving bones, and you're you're moving a lot of stuff. Um, So I think um, breaking things down into isolated things helps from a learning perspective and is, is necessary, but we have to realize that we're dealing with a complex system where you have all of these things interacting together at once to elicit certain behaviors with pain, or, or outputs with pain being a behavior and an output of of many that could potentially be occurring
0: yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense. and you know even even stuff like exercises that we thought were predominantly muscular in their aims I, th- I think the more we learn, the more we we realize like connective tissue has a big role, bones have a big role, like in like energy storage and deformation and Things that we once thought as targeted really do have these more wide ranging effects in terms of position, in terms of adaptation. I mean, there's a reason that a power lifter's skeleton, if you were to strip away all the muscle and all the like fat free mass, fat mass looks different than a normal person's skeleton. Like there's actual adaptation going on at the skeletal level.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, and there's a book out there called The Spinal Engine, which is is a really cool book, um, where they talk about like the number of newtons that like one part of the erector spinae can produce is like 200. And I'm I'm bastardizing the numbers specifically. So take that into consideration. But like in order to deadlift something very heavy, you have to, you're producing like 15,000 newtons of of force. And so um, we have a little bit of a mismatch in terms of the amount clearly. Um, so how, how is it that we can lift weights still? And well, that's, that's because the fascial system and all of the other systems interact together to be able to complete that task. And so it is important and, and it's all the systems are important and you can't, anytime you focus too much on one you and you neglect the others, you're, um, likely missing out on some important, um, information. Very
0: well said. Good, sir. I think we are running up on time here. Any uh, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with the people?
1: Uh, yeah, um, just if if I think overall, if if we can uh, be open minded to um, many different things with a with a, a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, and we, we never rule out things that could potentially help our clients and, and stay client first, then we're only going to do good things. So keep on keeping on fam.
0: How, what, do people learn more about you and, uh, how would they work with you?
1: Well, the place to be is that that's Z-A-C-C-U-P-P-L-E-S.com. That's where that, that's kind of the hub for all of my content on YouTube, social media, um, things of that nature. and that's where you can sign up for any services that you want to work with me, whether it's uh, movement consultations, which would help which would help with the increased space side of things, training, which is going to help with uh, you know uh, pushing uh, physiological qualities while still respecting your movement goals or mentoring. Um, I also offer my seminar Human Matrix, which we got a few of those coming up next year I actually might be in Denver I'm still working on that um yeah so that'll be that'll be fun um and you know otherwise I'm across all social media platforms uh YouTube uh, if you search Zach Couples and then I actually just started um I'm going to kind of silo my channels a bit there's Zach Couples exercise clips channel that's a new one that's going to be up there as opposed to throwing all my exercises on my main YouTube um so that's going to be there and then um in terms of social, if you go to that Instagram baby, it's Zach Z-A-C, couple C P P L E S, and Twitter and Facebook are Z couples. So
0: check me out there. I mean, I, I always find it very entertaining that Keanu Reeves actually has to pay you royalties every time that he uses the word matrix, because you went ahead and copy, copy wrote that way back in like 97, 98. I think you had just incredible foresight.
1: Yes, absolutely. and And not only that, but when I eventually have human matrix reloaded revolutions, and then 20 years later, I have human matrix resurrections. Um, I'll really be getting those royalty checks. I mean, 20 years from now, you are
0: going to have the jaw expansion of a Greek God. Uh, that's the hope
1: we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even though um, going through what I've gone through right now has been very helpful. I'm really tired of <laughs> having braces. Hopefully I won't have to do anything else for a while. Um, but who knows what's going to be available then and where my health's going to be. So stay tuned, stay tuned. Indeed.
0: Mr. Zach couples. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me on this fine day.
1: Tim it is a pleasure. As always, I could, I could do this weekly if we, if we had the time. So you're an amazing human being. Keep being awesome. Right
0: back at you. Thanks again, man. Thank you for listening to the more train less pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.